Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This is the Sports Illustrated Boxing Podcast. It's boxing. A look inside boxing with Sports Illustrated's Chris Mannix. Interviews, analysis, and everything going on in boxing. And now a man who I wish was called the Boston Bleeder. It's sort of like getting punched in the face. Chris Chris Mattis. All right, welcome back to another episode of the SI Boxing Podcast. On this episode, we've got Keith Idek, senior writer over at BoxingScene.com. It has been a wild week in the world of boxing from Jarrell Miller's positive PED test, some strange accusations from Deontay Wilder's camp, a scuttled fight between Amanda Serrano and Katie Taylor, and we're still waiting to see what happens with Canelo Alvarez. So I talked to Keith Idek about that and much more. A little bit later on, Callum Smith, the 168-pound champion. He is out there and still looking for a fight. I talked to Callum about his immediate future. We talk about what happened with the Canelo Alvarez negotiations, that and much more with the 168-pound champ, Callum Smith. Quick housekeeping note, if you like this podcast, very easy way you can support it. Head over to Apple Podcasts, post a comment, leave a rating. It's simple, it's easy, it's free. It's the best way to make sure that we keep doing this podcast week after week. That's it. All right, on to my conversation with Keith Idek. All right, Keith Idek is here, BoxingScene.com, friend of the podcast, still live from his man cave in New Jersey. What's up, Keith? Yes, sir. What's going on, Chris? So are you are you any closer, Keith, to getting back out there and going to live events? I know that's always a that, that's a tough needle of thread as we get further into this pandemic. But as boxing, we've got top rank back. Obviously, Showtime PBC is coming back to zone. Just announced their schedule for the next couple of months. How, where are you on all that? Well, I can. I, I would be a you know from a budget standpoint, we can do it. I just haven't seen the need so far to do it, just because the level of fights don't warrant it. You know, as much as we'd like to break up the monotony, as I'm sure you would, Chris, you're used to traveling all the time, as am I, uh, you know, you'd like to break it up. But then, you know, you're going to a place and you're basically being quarantined and and you can't go anywhere or do anything for fights that are not really worth it that you can cover from your house. So that's the way I've kind of approached it so far. When there are fights worth covering, 
fights that we ordinarily would travel to and spend the better part of a week at, I'll definitely do that. Um, And and now, of course, in Las Vegas, the cases are spiking and everything. And it's, you know, you're a little, we're we're in a better place here in New Jersey than we've been in quite some time because of the way they've handled it here from terms of the government. And you don't want to put yourself at more at risk than is necessary, I guess, while I'm not quote unquote old, you know, you you don't want to, you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you get sick, you know? Yeah, it feels like Canelo might be the first one that warrants kind of a mass yeah. crowd mm-hmm. uh, just because no matter who he fights, it's always kind of an event. So, But you're right, up until then, it's really kind of, you know, not necessarily risk versus reward, but is it worth the hassle of, you know, going through all that just to go out and see Alex Sosedo fight or to see, you know, right. Thomas DeLorme fight? So it's like, yeah, I, I get all that. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, I want to talk about the big news of the weekend and that involves our old friend Jarrell Big Baby Miller. It's been over a year, Keith, since Jarrell Miller tested positive for three different performance-enhancing substances, uh, dirty tests that killed Miller's chance of challenging Anthony Joshua for the Unified Heavyweight Championship last June and collecting a career-high payday in the process. Uh, Miller regrouped after that. He signed a new promotional deal with Top Rank. He was set to begin the rebuilding process when this week he once again tested positive for a banned substance, which promoter Bob Arum has identified as one of the three he tested positive for last year. Uh, Miller has denied that he willingly took banned substances, but his fight against Jerry Forrest this month is off, and his career is very much in doubt. So, Keith, your reaction to Big Baby Miller uh, at it again. You know, the initial reaction, and maybe even now, four days later, Chris, is you're dumbfounded. I I can't fathom how he could do this again. You know, of course, he has to go through the process and he has to get his B sample back and it has to be proven that he did test positive for what reportedly is, you know, one of the, and Bob Arum said that to me the other day also, uh, you know, that's one of the three substances that he tested positive for last year, which ruined the Anthony Joshua fight. I, I just, if, if he, assuming it is the, the B sample comes back that he failed the test, I just don't know how stupid one person could be. I, I really don't. I, I, he, last year... He, he lost basically a $5 million payday. The entire package, as you know, Chris, was over worth over $6 million. It was worth a lot of money to his you know, long line of promoters also. Um, so they lost out on a lot of money. He lost out on approximately a $5 million payday. To put yourself back in position where you essentially served no penalty, and really, he yes, he in effect served the suspension because he has not fought during that time period. So basically it was a suspension without being a suspension, but to put yourself back in position where you effectively served no punishment and you're in a position to make a lot, not $5 million, but a lot of money. And he, and top rank was going to pay him well and eventually put him into position to fight for a heavyweight championship again, to do the same thing again. There, there has to be something psychologically wrong with him. I, and Eddie Hearn has said that. And other people have said that. And it has to be true. Lou DiBella also has said there, you know, there must be something wrong with the guy if he would risk all of this again, knowing that he has no means to earn income besides boxing. To, to do it again, I, I just you almost don't have words for it. And uh, whatever penalty he does get from this, and he will this time. They're not going to use the he wasn't licensed thing because the Nevada state athletic commission is treating him as a licensee in this case. So uh, he won't, he won't be allowed to get away with that again. 
Um, but to put yourself in that position again, Chris, it, it dumbfounding is the best word that I can come up with. Yeah, all, all I can think is that this guy must fundamentally and deep down not believe mm. he can be an elite fighter without banned substances. I know he's denying it. And look, he had, I mean, you go back to the last year. I mean, he ran the gamut of excuses. At first, he kind of owned up to it, it, it seemed like. And then he was like, no, no, it wasn't. It was uh, stem cell something. Or it was just like there's all mm. the, a variety of different excuses that he used. But I go back to, I had a talent scout, we'll call him that, a talent scout that you know would watch Jarrell Miller early in his boxing career. And when Miller was climbing the ranks, when he signed with Eddie, when he was on DAZN and doing all that stuff, um, the, this person told me, he's like, this is not the Jarrell Miller that I scouted early in his professional career. I mean, he was always a, a higher volume punching guy, but he was never this super high volume punching guy that just overwhelmed you with the type of punches that you rarely see in the heavyweight division. So I just got to believe that that deep down, Jarrell Miller doesn't think he can do it, that that right. he can't be an elite fighter without putting substance in your system. I mean, you know, I, I talk to Sergio Mora a lot, and Sergio actually is willing to like say, you know, the first time we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't, but the first time we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. After all that, like you don't make you don't make the requisite changes to your team that you might need to make. You don't take extra, extra precautions to make sure this doesn't happen. I mean, it really, I hate to throw around like uh, medical terms, but sociopathic comes to mind with, with this, that you're just yeah. completely fixated on taking uh, these types of substances. Chris, the audacity that you would have to have to do this again, it, it's remarkable. I mean, I don't really have any sympathy for him because as you said, Sergio wants to give him a pass for the first time. Well, that wasn't the first time. That was actually the second time. It was the first time actually in boxing, as you know, Chris, but he had done it in kickboxing and then boxed right away after that. I think he even boxed while he was on suspension from the California State Athletic Commission in kickboxing, which really speaks to the, the bigger problem in, in that boxing has is that they don't police PEDs nearly as well as they should. It's, it's one of the primary problems we have in the sport. So he probably looks at it like, well, I really haven't served much of a penalty for this, and I'm, again, being rewarded for bad behavior. And as you said, he probably has a mental defect in the sense that he doesn't feel that he can do it without being enhanced. You know, there, there has not been a 315-pound volume puncher in the history of boxing, right? I mean, and he was throwing an astounding amount of punches for a heavyweight, and certainly a heavyweight. He's not a normal heavyweight. He was 315 pounds by the end of it there the last time that he fought. So... Um, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know, man. I, you know, as a human being, I mean, you want to give people the benefit of the doubt, but this is so egregious and, and just so, you know, just really spitting in everyone's face who has given you a second chance. And then to come back with the, I, I saw the video last night that, uh, that he did on a YouTube channel. Um, I, I'm sure you saw it as well, where he's essentially making, no, no, he's making the same exact excuse that he made last year saying, I didn't knowingly do it, and I'm going to provide proof legally to show that I didn't do it. He said the same thing last year, yet we never saw that supposed proof. So I don't know why he would even bother trying to sell that narrative at this point. Um, but, you know, I would expect him to be suspended, assuming the B sample comes back positive. Uh, I would expect him to be suspended for somewhere between two to three years. And I think it would be longer than that if he were actually suspended last year 
which he kind of got away with on a technicality because he was not licensed at the time that he failed the VATA test by the uh, New York State Athletic Commission. Yeah. Um, two uh, follow, uh, subsequent questions from that. You know, you mentioned the, the probable suspension that's coming once the B sample comes back. Do you think we've seen the end of Jarrell Miller? He's 31 years old. Conceivably, let's say it's on the short end of a suspension, 33. That's still, you're still in a heavyweight, you know, fighter's ability to fight. Uh, do you think some other promoter will give him a chance down the line? Yes, I do. Uh, because I think if he serves a two-year suspension, he'll be 33, which is not, for a heavyweight, is not that old. He would still have some time left, and someone will give him a chance because that's the nature of the United States, right? I mean, everyone gets second, third chances, and um, he does have some ability. I don't think he's an elite fighter. I never have. Um, but but he on the heavyweight landscape as it is now, he's a top 15 guy for sure, and, and he essentially talked his way into a heavyweight title shot with Anthony Joshua, and, and good for him because the, the one thing that I think you and I would agree with, Chris, is – for, for what we do, Jarrell Miller was fantastic. You know, he was a great talker. He, you know, he talked a lot of trash about Anthony Joshua and a lot of other people. Um, and he was fun to deal with. He was usually pretty pleasant to deal with. Uh, and I do think that another promoter will give him a chance. Now, it obviously will not be top rank, which I would expect to terminate his contract if, again, the B sample comes back positive and he, um, and he is suspended for a lengthy amount of time. I would expect them to cut bait with him and, and we won't see Jarrell Miller ever fight for top rank. Um, and in some cases, and a lot of people are saying top rank kind of got what they deserved here. They knew what they were getting into. And there were even people internally in top rank that did not want to have anything to do with Jarrell Miller. And we found out exactly why on Saturday. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm one of the people that kind of thinks top rank got what they deserve. I mean, you, mm. you roll the dice with a guy like this and, and this happens. I mean, it's, I don't have too much sympathy for for them in this regard. A lot of sympathy for some of the other things that have been going on with top rank in the last month, but this is a different uh, ball game altogether. Is this, you know, how can this be or can this be a turning point, Keith? Because you and I both know th there's a ticking time bomb in boxing, and that time bomb is a fighter kills another fighter in the ring and then that fighter tests positive for a banned substance. And then the conversation becomes, should said fighter be charged with murder? Like, I, I, that's where, how I see it. Like, if you are using a banned substance and you kill someone, which is not as abnormal or unusual as it should be, we've seen it, we saw it multiple times in this past year, um, when that happens, then it all explodes. Then... Congress gets involved. Then, you know, various other branches of the government get involved. Uh, to me, boxing has to find a way to head this off. And it, I know they won't because, you know, stuff like this generally, generally gets swept under the rug and, you know, we wait for time to pass and we all kind of move on. But can we get to a point in boxing where there is universal testing? I know the WBC, as much as I criticize them, like, you know, that clean boxing program they have is a step in the right direction. Like, mm. if you if these fighters, especially the... The title-fighting fighters, I mean, they should have to be involved in a 24-7, 365 program. I mean, it's not the solution to everything because you've got a lot of younger fighters that aren't tested. Uh, I know there are high costs involved, but can this be a turning point for boxing? With that, that maybe they dodged a bullet with, you know, Jarrell Miller not going out there and maybe hurting Jerry Forrest, and, and maybe we can use this to move forward. I mean, can it be, or is that just kind of, you know, too pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking? 
Well, we all hope that it can be, Chris. And I will say the WBC deserves a lot of credit. You know, we criticize, we're quick to criticize the sanctioning organizations and rightfully so in most cases, but they're on the right track here. I mean, they're, they're ahead of this in this, well, they're all behind, but they're ahead of everyone else in that they've made this testing mandatory if you're going to be ranked by the WBC. Um, so they're, they really, really are ahead of everyone else in that sense and deserve uh, applause for that. But the sport as a whole lags behind in, in such a disgusting manner when it comes to PEDs. It's almost tough to put into words. How does the person like Jarrell Miller fail for three substances last year and then not serve a suspension? He literally was not suspended. And while it was a technicality, there was nothing that the Association of Boxing Commissions could do about it to make sure that he was suspended. The deterrents just are not there for these guys to, to not cheat. Because what penalty do they serve when they do cheat? Jarrell Miller is obviously the primary example now, but what about Alexander Povetkin? Alexander Povetkin has tested positive for multiple banned substances, different substances, and in effect has served no penalty and has been rewarded with big fight after big fight after big fight, including a huge payday to fight Anthony Joshua in September 2018. And now he's fighting for the interim WBC title. So you would have to assume for now, at least, he's clean because he's in that clean testing program because he's fighting Dillian White for the interim WBC title. But there are just not enough deterrents. And as you said, Chris, is it going to take someone, in effect, murdering someone else because they're juiced up? Uh, this sport is dangerous enough. We saw it far too many times last year and far too many times since you and I have been covering the sport. This is brutal, man. I mean, when you go up those steps, you literally don't know if you're coming back down. And that is not melodramatic. That is a fact. And you don't, you shouldn't be put in there. If, if you're a clean fighter, you should know that the guy that you're fighting, if he's better than you and he's the better man that night, all well and good. But he should not have some artificial advantage over you that makes this even more dangerous for you and for your family than it already is. And the fact that nothing has been done about it to this point, despite all of these absurd cases, and this is, I mean, this is Lance Armstrong like here, what's happened. I mean, it, you know, it's Lance Armstrong without the success and the money basically that, that mm. Jarrell Miller has done here. Um, and he's really going about it in a Lance Armstrong way by just deny, 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 deny. I mean, what kind of person are you? When, you, when you've been caught cheating three times in six years, and by the way, he's pretty bad at cheating. He was getting caught, right? I mean, he's, not, he's not good at it. So, um, But he's been caught three times in two different sports in a six-year span. And you know now, hopefully, will serve a lengthy suspension. But how hasn't he by now? It's, it's crazy that he hasn't. And, I mean, look, it, it, God forbid that day comes – when we're sitting here talking about a fighter on a substance killing another fighter. Uh, but at that point, I will have no, I, I don't want to hear from promoters of that event saying, well, something has to be done. I don't want to hear from, I don't want to hear from anyone associated with the fighters saying something has to be done. Now is your time. Now is the time to affect change. Now is the time to push for, insist. I mean, who is it? Um, it's J-Rock Williams, right? And, and Breadman Edwards that have said, like, we're not yeah. fighting somebody mm -hmm. that's not in a clean testing program. Take that approach. If you're a top fighter, if you're Canelo, 
If you're uh, Fury, Wild, like any of the top guys that control the money in boxing, no matter what the event is, you should say no chance, no way, no how, unless you are in some kind of clean boxing, boxing program, whether it's WBCs or Bada or uh, anything like, like that. I mean, that that is that should go without saying. And if you want to take a lesser approach to it, one thing I've been thinking of is if a guy does test positive once, he should never be allowed to fight. He should be in a clean boxing program for the rest of his career or else he's done. Like that should be, if you want to give a guy one strike, that's fine. But that strike comes with conditions that you have to be in clean testing program uh, for, for the foreseeable future. But yeah, like I, you, Keith, I, I don't have a lot of confidence in it. Yeah, you're a thousand percent right, Chris. But, but the other thing is, the biggest thing is, like most things in life, it comes down to money. Who is paying for the testing? The testing is expensive. And I'm not saying that should stop it from happening, but they have to figure out who absorbs the expense and how do they split it up? I mean, is it on the, is it on the fighters to do that? I, you, you can't tell a guy in a six round fight who's making $2,000 that he has to pay $5,000 for testing, obviously. So, that, but it also is not the responsibility of American taxpayers through the commissions to pay for all this testing for boxing when, you know, 99.9% of Americans could not care less about boxing. So that, that it's not their responsibility. The burden shouldn't fall on them. It should, it's going to fall on the promoters and the television networks, but if they want to get this right and make sure that something tragic doesn't happen, they're going to have to pay for it. And that doesn't just mean the guys in the main event because the four-round guy who works a full-time job and is making a couple thousand dollars getting his head beaten in on the weekend, he deserves to be protected just as much as you know Jerry Forrest or anyone else who would go in there against a guy who might be using an illegal substance. Yeah, I completely agree uh, with that. There has to be a way to figure out the finances to make it uh, work out for for everyone involved. Uh, All right, let's move on from this story to another weirder one at this point. In the aftermath of his knockout loss to Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder blamed an oversized outfit for his defeat. This week, uh, Wilder's brother, Marcellos, took to social media to accuse Fury of loading his gloves for the fight. Marcellos said, quote, It was discovered by doctors that my brother has a dent at the side of his head due to a blunt object striking his head in the last fight. No glove or fist was able to cause the damage according to the autopsy. Uh, Putting aside, I think autopsy is the wrong word uh, with that uh, statement. What do you make, Keith, of Team Wilder effectively accusing Fury of loading his gloves? Well, it was certainly interesting, and I, I wonder when we're going to get to the point when Marcellus Wilder is not causing controversy for his brother, because it's it's happened quite a few times. Dominic Brazil, yeah, last couple was... of yeah, and another you know other instances, but um, I don't know what to make. The autopsy thing was hilarious, of course, but uh, I don't know what to make of it exactly. I I, um, I know that Deontay Wilder himself probably wants to be very careful moving forward about making anything else that would be perceived as an excuse after this loss, because, you know, he, he took a beating in, in the court of public opinion after the fight by making all the excuses that he made. And, and in hindsight, that, that was a mistake for him. So I, he has laid low basically since then, other than twerking, I guess. Um, but he, he basically has not said much over the last few months. So uh, I don't know what he's going to say about this. I mean, I, I would find it very interesting if he does have a dent on the side of his head to how, how that happened exactly. But fighters who have been in brutal fights, you know, I, I don't remember Arturo Gatti after fighting Mickey Ward three times, having a literal dent on the side of his head or, or Mickey. Um, 
So I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to make of it. I, it's kind of odd that he's the one who went on there and released it. You know, maybe he just uh, he obviously did it without his brother's knowledge, I would assume. But um, I don't know what to make of it, though. I mean, and it, but this this controversy, if you want to call it that, about Fury having having loaded gloves is not going away because now there's this. I mean, it's not just, you know, the pictures of his glove looking, you know, how it looked in some of those photos. But uh, Fury responded and he said, you know, what you would expect him to say that he didn't do anything wrong. You know, JD's watched him get his hands wrapped. They inspected his gloves, which would, that's all true. So I don't know how his gloves would have been doctored. I mean, it, anything's possible, I guess, but I mean, when would they have doctored his gloves from the time that the gloves were inspected when they were taken out of the plastic and, uh, and then they were put on for the fight. I, I don't know, but uh, there are a lot of conspiracy theories out there and, and, some people do believe that he had loaded gloves. I mean, a lot of those are Deontay Wilder's fans who are looking for reasons why that happened February 22nd, but uh, it, it came out of left field and it was, uh, you know, it was pretty nuts. Um, I'm just happy that Deontay Wilder was alive and it didn't come from his autopsy, you know? Yes. That was the first reaction I had. Oh, <laughs> dead? Like what, what's, what's happening there? We don't um, need that. You're right though. It is, it's not the first time that, We've had to hear this loaded gloves theory. I mean, Steve Cunningham has been pushing the, you know, how is his hand doing this? You know, showing video of it. And you know, I don't know what I'm necessarily seeing on those videos, if angles could be manipulated. I mean, I'm not entirely sure about all that. All I can know is that, I mean, J.D. was, like you said, standing in there, you know, overseeing the wrapping of the hands. And look, it's not impossible to sneak something by uh, a trainer or a manager that's watching. I mean, God knows how long Antonio Margarito was doing it uh, before, what was it, Nazim Richardson, you know, called him out and, right. and, and spotted right. it, you know, before the Mosley fight. So, you know, things can happen, but I, I don't know. I mean, there's there's not much more that can be done than having, you know, a, a commission, in Nevada commission rep watching the hands being wrapped, JD's watching the hands being wrapped. And by the way, hand wraps are... Most of the time, they're televised. Like, the the cameras are aimed at them. Mm-hmm. So everybody's kind of getting a look that wants to get a look at those hands being wrapped. This was a really weird accusation to come at this time. And unfortunately for Deontay Wilder, he's going to have to answer for it. Like, you know, it's his brother yeah. putting it out there. But the second, you know, Wilder becomes available en masse to people like you and me, we're going to ask him, you know, do you have a dent in your head? Like, can you tell us about right. this doctor's appointment? Like, exactly what happened there? It's just... It's just not a great look. And look, it's not like Deontay Wilder was knocked out by this one concussive punch. Like, there wasn't like this big shot that put him mm-hmm. down. He was just mm-hmm. overwhelmed by a guy that decided to take the fight to him and, and just box him into a corner and, and knock him out by effectively submission of his corner. So, you know, that was another part of it, too. I, I just, I, I don't think that this is going to go over well for Wilder in the long term unless he can really back it up with some evidence. Yeah, and, and there could be visible evidence. I haven't seen Deontay Wilder in person since, you know, the the night of the fight. And they, and he didn't come to the uh, press conference, so we didn't even see him afterward. But but if there is a dent in his head, I mean, it would be visible, and I'm sure he'd be able to point it out to us. So um, that doesn't mean that Tyson Fury cheated necessarily, but it, it, it's unusual. You know, it's certainly unusual for any, even a boxer who is getting punched in the head repeatedly in sparring and in actual fights to have a dent in his head. I mean, that's pretty strange. So uh, when we see Deontay Wilder the next time, I'm sure, you know, we'll all be able to ask him about it and he'll point it out to, to us. 
but like I said, I don't think Chris that he wanted that out there just based on the uh, the beating his reputation has taken since he lost the fight. Uh, between you know the the heavy costume being part of the excuse and you know his conspiracy theory about uh, it turned out to be he said Andre Durrell, but it was actually Anthony Durrell who was uh, yelling in the corner there. So I don't know. I, I, the last thing he needs is another what's perceived as an excuse to answer for here. I think the faster we get to this third fight and who knows at this point with the pandemic, it might not even be in 2020. It might be early 2021 before we get to that fight, but it couldn't come soon enough for Deontay Wilder. So he at least has the opportunity to go in there and try to rectify what happened February 22nd and put all of this stuff behind him. Yeah. It's, it's a separate topic, but I have no reason to believe we're going to see that fight in 2020. It just, if they're predicating it on crowds, and that ain't happening. I mean, I just, I just don't see it happening anytime soon. At least not for the rest of this calendar year. And, and I don't blame them for waiting. I mean, it was a seventeen million dollar gate the last yeah. time around. It might be more this time. I mean, that's real money, you know, for for these fighters. So, do, do you do you uh, mean, Chris, that it's not going to Macau or uh, wherever else? <laughs> Australia. I heard that was in the mix. We're gonna hey. do things down under. Listen, I, I'd love to go to Australia. I'm sure you would too. And there are very few COVID nineteen cases there, so. Let's go down under. Time me up. You know? Yeah, let, let's let the, the Americans be the ones that come down there and spread the disease. That'll, that'll go really well for our <laughs> reputation in that country. Well, what's our um, reputation want, at this point? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to talk about another strange story. That is uh, Amanda Serrano and Katie Taylor. These are two of the most recognizable faces in women's boxing. Serrano, Taylor, both multi-division champions. Serrano's jumped all the way from, I think, 115 pounds up to 140. They have been circling each other for the better part of a year. Uh, Serrano, when she signed a co-promotional deal with Eddie Hearn, it was a three-fight deal that was supposed to end with Katie Taylor. Now, the pandemic has thrown everything into flux. That fight was supposed to happen in early May. It's been pushed a couple of times. And now, by all accounts, it is off at this point. Serrano and her team have accused Taylor of trying to cut her, uh, her purse have said that you know the training isn't there's not enough time to train and spar to get ready for that fight. Whereas Katie Taylor or whoever's tweeting for Katie Taylor has taken to social media and you know basically said Serrano put up or shut up at this point. Let's go. What uh, what have you made of that situation? Any of it surprised you the way it kind of disintegrated between Amanda Serrano and Katie Taylor? It did surprise me because Amanda Serrano is supposed to make a career high purse here, and while it's not a huge purse in comparison to what men make in boxing. It's by far the most that she's made in her career. Uh, the timing part of it, I, I don't think should have been a reason why they why they won't fight from Amanda Serrano's perspective. They were given almost two months basically to fight on August 22nd. You know, it's almost eight weeks, but you know, when they were trying to wrap this whole thing up now, for, just to backtrack for a second, Chris, from the beginning, I do not think that Amanda Serrano should have to have taken a pay cut for this fight. She signed a contract for a lesser amount of money than she wanted for the fight. So she had already made a concession in her mind uh, to fight for a lower amount of money. So for Eddie Hearn to have come back to her and asked her to take a pay cut, I don't blame her for standing her ground and Lou DiBella standing his ground for her and not taking a pay cut because Eddie can't have it both ways. He can't say that Gennady Golovkin has to make some absurd amount of money to fight Camille Zarameda because he has a contract, but Amanda Serrano, who also has a contract, is not supposed to make what she makes. So I, I, I'm with her on that. 
I'm not so sure I'm with her on not taking the fight August 22nd, because while we know that she had signed up to do this reality show, and I don't blame them for that either because the fight had been postponed twice and they had been led to believe that the fight might not happen until the fall. So she would have been able to film this show for Telemundo during the time that she now should have spent training for the fight. But I don't blame them for pursuing that opportunity because she's not making millions of dollars. I mean, and this show could have paid her, I believe, $200,000 if she won. It's like a sports competition show. It's not a boxing show. But um, so there was no risk in her getting hurt from a boxing perspective. Of course, she could get hurt, you know, just doing athletic competition. But anyway, that aside, I don't think that they didn't have enough time to do it. I do understand some of their reservations about, you know, it could get postponed a third time. I, I, of course it could. Um, and they don't want to go to England, but they were supposed to go to England to begin with. And it's in Eddie's backyard. The, the other thing is Katie Taylor trains in the United States. She lives in Connecticut, trains in Connecticut. Um, so she's in the same boat, so to speak, as Amanda Serrano. It is tough to get sparring. Gyms in New York are not even open for boxers. Uh, so it is not ideal, and I understand her hesitation in that sense. But other fighters from New York, Chris, as you well know, uh, Mikkel Lespierre is fighting on ESPN uh, on Thursday night, works a full-time job at a hospital, you know, and had to train outside for all intents and purposes for this fight against Jose Pedraza. But he still made it work, and he's making a lot less money than Amanda Serrano for that fight. So it can be done, and she could have gone somewhere else to train. I guess a place where gyms are open and things. Again, it's not ideal, and and I understand her hesitation. But Katie Taylor is not in some uh, in a much better position than her, and she's doing the same thing in effect, right? I'm sure it's not easy for her to get sparring during what's still a pandemic, also. So um, I can see it from both sides, but I do think that the fight should have happened August 22nd. If um, you know, if they could, they both. The one thing I will say, though, Chris, and I know I've said a lot already, but. Um, the one thing I will say <laughs> is what I don't understand necessarily why the fight couldn't be in the United States. I, I do understand that he wants it to be part of that Dillian White, Alexander Povetkin pay-per-view because Katie Taylor's a popular fighter and it would boost sales of that pay-per-view. But the fight could be in the United States. I mean, if you can do Jessica McCaskill and uh, a Cecilia Brakis in a parking lot in Tulsa, and good luck with that, by the way. Um, <laughs> Why, why can't you do Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano somewhere in the United States? Because the crowd is not a factor. The gate is not a factor. Oh, first of all, bite me for the parking lot. <laughs> <and Tulsa comments. laughs> not inaccurate, but, but you can bite me. Um, yeah, I, I agree with most of what you said there. I, I think it is disingenuous to kind of act like Katie Taylor is – Ivan Drago, and while Amanda Serrano is driving through New York looking for an open gym, you know, Katie Taylor's, you know, in this lab, you know, with sparring partners and all these technicians working with her. I mean, she is in middle of nowhere, Connecticut, and I'm not mm -hmm. sure she's getting any much better work than, than Amanda is. And look, if you, to your point, if you wanted to move around a little bit, I mean, drive up to Maine or something, like you could find, you know, some place to go and work if you're uh, Amanda Serrano. I think. It was a, a dick move by Eddie Hearn to, like, you know, threaten legal action against Telemundo. I, I don't even know mm -hmm. how that even works. Like, you can't you can't force a fighter to get into the ring. If, Kate, if Amanda Serrano was saying, like, I'm going to go sign with Bellator or something like that, maybe you've got a leg to stand on. But yeah. if Amanda Serrano wants to go do television, can't stop her from doing that. That is, there's no 
leverage that Eddie Hearn has in that situation. So costing Amanda Serrano that, I, I thought was was something of a dick move. But it's funny. Overall, I'm not I'm not so upset this isn't happening because I'm with you. I, I think if you can get to maybe early next year and this pandemic clears, that's a fight that I think could sell out the theater at the Garden. Like, I, I think that you have Puerto Rico versus Ireland at MSG. You you fill the undercard with those types of, of fights and, you know, popular local opponents. You could do 5,000 fans at the Garden for that type of fight. Mm-hmm. And when, how many fights in women's boxing can we say that? That, that could actually sell out a major venue, uh, even at 5,000. So if this, you know, money talks always. So, you know, as temperatures cool in the next couple of months, I wouldn't mind to see this be part of Eddie's Matchroom USA schedule in early 2021 if if these buildings open up and allow for uh, fights with crowds to happen. Yeah, that would be a great fight for the theater, I think, especially if you could do it. And I know Top Rank usually reserves the garden for around that time. But if you could do it around St. Patrick's Day, you know, for Katie Taylor and obviously Amanda Serrano's from Brooklyn and a pretty popular Puerto Rican fighter from Brooklyn. So I think you would do a, a, a good crowd there. It would be a nice event to do at the theater. Uh, you just hope that, uh, you know, Eddie, from what I, my understanding is, he's furious about this and he's on, on a rampage about it, basically. And um, you just hope that it doesn't cost Amanda Serrano this fight forever because this is the fight that could make her career. Um, you know, obviously she's she's had a lot of success, you know, won titles and all these divisions going up and down and weight and everything. Uh, but really, you know, this is the biggest fight of her career. And then, you know, because if it doesn't happen and Katie Taylor, if she fights uh, Delphine Pursoon again and beats her, I mean, that's a good alternative, by the way, if that fight winds up happening in place of, of that, because their first fight was so close, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think people would be satisfied with that in the short term. Uh, but if, if the fight does not happen, then Katie Taylor winds up fighting at a catch weight or whichever weight she would wind up fighting Cecilia Brakis. Maybe this fight goes away forever for Amanda Serrano. And then this will turn out to have been a bad move because she's never going to recoup that. Who is she going to fight to make that kind of money again? Yeah. There, there isn't anyone out there that could, you know, bring that type of money to the table. All, all I'd say about Eddie is that as angry as he is, he's, he's a, he's practical. Like mm-hmm. he knows that, you know, he's been chasing opponents for Taylor for the better part of three years now. Um, you know, Serrano, the money's always still going to be there. So I think cooler heads will prevail, and they'll find a way to put that back together. Will it happen before a Cecilia Brakus fight? I mean, I I don't know. I, I kind of hope so. I have more interest still in Serrano versus Taylor than than Brakus versus Taylor. But if we get to early 2021 uh, and, and those two are still available and circling each other, I, I just have a strong suspicion that that fight could still happen and will still happen on uh, on U.S. soil. Uh, let me finish, Keith, with this. Um, we are now, uh, let's say, two, three months away from, you know, Canelo's kind of scheduled date, uh, two, two plus months from Canelo's scheduled date. Uh, still no opponent yet for Canelo Alvarez. Um, you know, they, they're, they're circling, I think, a couple of guys right now. I think Anthony Durrell is still in the mix, at least, and being talked about. Uh, Sergey Dervinchenko is someone that is still in the mix right now. Uh, Eric Gomez has come out and said that it's not going to be a world champion, so that obviously takes Golovkin off the table. It takes Dimitri Bivol off the table. It takes you know several guys off the table. Um, as we're kind of in this pandemic, and you and I talked at the top of this about Canelo really being the first major superstar to likely come back. I mean, who is an acceptable opponent for him? Like who 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 would you look at as being signed and be like, all right, 
because of all the circumstances, uh, because of the situation we're in, that's a solid choice for Canelo Alvarez. Well, I think Derevianchenko would be that guy just because there are people that think he beat Golovkin in that fight. It was a very close fight. It's one of the, it was a brutal fight, in my opinion, the fight of the year last year. So his only two losses are a close unanimous decision loss to Golovkin and a split decision loss to Daniel Jacobs. So uh, Derevianchenko certainly is an acceptable opponent for me. I would prefer the fight to happen at 160 or you know, a catch weight of 62 or 63, as opposed to super middleweight 168. While Derevianchenko has fought at 168, he's, he's better suited to fight at middleweight. So he's at a disadvantage there. Um, but that's a, that's a good fight though. I mean, in some ways that could turn out to be a better fight than Billy Joe Saunders. You know, Saunders tends to get up for his level of competition. You'll go up and down for his level of opponent. Uh, so I think he would have given, uh, Canelo a reasonably good fight, but it's a much more expensive fight, probably twice as expensive as they could wind up getting Drevinchenko for. And now, you know, finances for DAZN are more of a uh, an issue than they've ever been. And they're looking to get a cheaper opponent for this fight. And if it winds up being uh, Sergei Drevinchenko, I think people will, will be okay with that, you know, because they were supposed to fight last year. They were supposed to fight last fall. And that's how the golovkin Drevinchenko fight wound up happening because Canelo got stripped of his IBF title. So they were going to fight before. I think that's a, a, particularly based on how Drevianchenko fought against Golovkin. I think people would like to see that despite that it would be at super middleweight. Anthony Durrell, you know, he's toward the end of his career now, um, an accomplished fighter for sure, a tough guy um, and, and a good fighter. I mean, he, but, but he did get, he got beat up toward the end of his fight against David Benavidez and he has not fought since then. So you're talking about having a 36-year-old guy fight Canelo coming off a one-year layoff when he was knocked out and is bloodied and knocked out in his last fight. That's a tough sell, but it's a but it's a cheaper fight for them to make, which is why they're exploring it. He is a former WBC world champion. Um, that that loss is like the only definitive loss to, of his career, the loss to Benavidez, uh, because I, he lost a majority decision to Badu Jack. Um, but I, I, if that's the fight that Canelo winds up with, uh, you know, people will not be happy with that, obviously. So I think Drevianchenko is is the way that they will go, uh, because Saunders is not an option based on money, and you know, who knows what kind of shape Saunders is in after being out for a couple of months and everything. So, so that's 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 not an option. So I think those are the two alternatives they're looking at right now. Um, and if it winds up being Drevianchenko, uh, you know, who also could fight Jamal Charlo. Uh, you know, he's the number one contender for Charlo. Ronnie, Ronnie Shields said earlier this week he considers uh, Drevianchenko the front runner for that fight. Uh, I think people would much more, maybe not Canelo fans, but but boxing fans in general might want to see Drevianchenko Charlo more than they would want to see Drevianchenko Canelo, especially because it's at middleweight and it would be Charlo's biggest test since he moved up to 160. Yeah, I think Drevianchenko Charlo, as you know, I think that's there to be signed. I think that's basically on the table and what Derevinchenko and his team are doing are just kind of waiting to see, you know, if Canelo will uh, raise his price to, to pay Derevinchenko probably cost him around, I'm guessing $4 million in the range to get Derevinchenko to fight Canelo. Um, I don't think they're there yet uh, with that type of, of money, but you know, I, I, I think if you're trying to sell a Canelo fight during a pandemic, that's the best way to do it because you made the point about both these guys coming off losses. Jarrell's coming off 
basically a beatdown, especially at the end of that fight against Benavidez. I mean, Benavidez just, he cut him, and then he took basically the boxing life out of him in that fight. Whereas Derevchenko, I mean, I thought he won. I didn't have a, uh, a problem with the decision, but I scored at one point for for Derevchenko. So he's he's coming off a fight of the year uh, fight against you know a, a, a Canelo foil in Golovkin uh, that you can sell. Like, you can sell that fight. So I think paying the extra money, it's not my money, but paying the extra money is is worth it for a fight that is sellable in the buildup and I think will be infinitely more entertaining than a Durrell fight, than a Saunders fight. I also happen to think it's a lot less dangerous than a Saunders fight. I mean, I think Darvinchenko is a good fighter, but his style I don't think is great for Canelo. I think he'd walk into some big shots, mm-hmm. um, you know, during that fight. But... You know, for for DAZN, for Canelo, it could be the kind of fight that gives you some momentum into what they hope will be a Golovkin-Canelo fight in early 2021. Yeah, let's hope we see that, Chris. At this point, you know, it looks like Golovkin is going to fight Camille Zarmeta. The fact that both of them have been in positions where they could turn down the fight when it was offered to, you know, first it was Canelo that wouldn't do it, now it's Golovkin that won't do it. It's kind of nuts that that they both have been allowed to do that. Um, but ho- you know, if they both win their upcoming fights, you know, let's hope that their next fight uh, for both of them early in twenty, you know, sometime in the first half of twenty twenty one, is that fight, and that we have fans, and that we're somewhere closer to normal uh, than we are now, of course. Because, like you said, I don't know that we're going to be in a position where there are going to be fans in arenas anytime soon. You know, there are spikes, and they were talking about doing fights in Texas before a crowd, and now. Look what's happening in Texas with COVID-19 cases. So I don't think that will happen. And I think we're a ways away from seeing a crowd, certainly a sizable crowd in a boxing match. And, you know, if Derevchenko fights Canelo, we can get back to the fight that everybody wants to see. Charlo versus Andrade in 2020. The biggest fight in boxing that could be made that gets us right back on track, Keith. Right locked in. If I didn't know any better, if I didn't know any better, I would think you were from Providence, not Boston, you know? <laughs> team, I, I'm not, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not even team Andrew on this. I'm team that fight. I know. Like, team, I know. give me that fight. Just please, God, let these two guys sign on the dotted line to make that fight happen. Uh, Keith, always good to talk to you, man. Hopefully, uh, see you sooner than later as we get uh, more boxing going on and uh, hopefully we get back into those uh, press seats, those those new socially distanced press seats that I'm sure are going to be in effect, which, as you know, Keith, not to take people too far inside, but, I mean, dude, we're crammed in like sardines on press row and some of these things. Oh, like, man. It'd be nice to have a little elbow room. Especially for those big fights, you know, like people are, you can't, you don't barely have room to type sometimes, you know, so, yeah, I'll definitely welcome that, man. My pleasure coming on, Chris. Be well, man. Appreciate it. You got it. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Now, I'm supposed to talk here about what I remember and what I loved about my first car. And that's easy for me to do because I still have my first car. And as long as it keeps running, and so far so good, I intend to have that car probably until the day I die. Uh, That's how much I love that car. It is like a child to me. Now, it does require some upkeep, and that's why I'm grateful for a place like eBay Motors. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, 
eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Ready, set, griddle this grilling season. Get the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle with a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. With no use of coatings, you can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Everything rusts and nobody talks about it because they couldn't fix it until now. With Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber will last for years. When used, our carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge. It reaches up to 500 degrees. With the Weber Works Prep cook and store system, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. All right, joining me now on the podcast, he is the 168-pound champion, one of the best fighters in the world today, Callum Smith. Live from where are you these days, Callum? Liverpool, Liverpool, England. Mm -hmm. All right, so a bunch of stuff I want to get into with you, but just tell me off the bat, like, what's this last couple of months been like for you? I mean, how are you spending your time? How are you trying to stay in shape? How difficult has it been to stay in shape? Just tell me all about the last couple of months. Yeah, it's been, it's, it's had its pros and cons, obviously not being able to, to go to the boxing gym and do proper full boxing training and sparring and stuff like that and get ready for, for the fight day. It's been frustrating. Obviously we're all fighters. We want to fight. We want to, we want to keep proving, proving how good we are. And that's been a bit, bit frustrating because everything's froze at the minute and there's no kind of idea of when things are going to be back to normal. But in a personal life, it, it gave me a chance to you know, spend more quality time with my family, be at home a bit more, which is stuff you don't really get to do when, when you're in full training camp. So it, it's come with its benefits. But you know, as a fighter, I, I want to be in the gym, I want to be improving and I want to be working towards a fight day. Are you, what, what can you do to try to keep yourself in as best condition as possible? Um, just your usual, you know, keep you running up. I've been doing bits of cycling, which is stuff I've never really, really used to do. And just the odd little bodyweight circuits and stuff like that. And it's more to just keep busy. I'm used to being active. I'm used to having a routine, going to the gym daily. And I've tried to just keep that up as much as I can and just break the day up a little bit more. I've obviously, I've not got a fight day to aim towards, but when I do get a fight day, I don't want to be starting from rock bottom I want to have some form of base and keep myself ticking over so I've just tried to do that as much as I can but it is tough there is only so much you can do so you and your family well known in the United Kingdom but in the US I'm not sure how many people are aware of just how deep the boxing ties are in in the Smith family I mean your your older brothers Liam Paul Stephen all professional boxers all successful on different levels 
Uh, Liam, of course, a lot of people remember as 154-pound titleist fought Canelo uh, here several years ago, uh, still chasing another title today. Um, I'm just wondering, for people that don't know, how, how did boxing become the family business? Was it just one after another, one older brother, the next one in line, or is there more to it? Yeah, no, pretty much so. As as kids, we lived across the road from a local amateur boxing club, and my eldest brother Paul, he went in with his friends and took it up and took to it, enjoyed it, stuck at it, and then Stephen being the typical younger brother followed Paul everywhere and he joined and then it was just a conveyor belt. I was I was a little boy following me, me brothers up and down the country and seeing them be successful and become national champions and represent the country and I always just wanted to be like them. So it was inevitable that me and Liam were going to follow and then the four of us took it up and we've all kind of bounced off each other and learned off each other over the years and you know, we've managed to be successful between the four of us. Were you boxing fans growing up, or was it just the competition that you liked? Uh, no, we were always boxing fans. I remember as a little boy, my dad always had you no know, videotapes of all all the old fighters and you know, the Four Kings videotape for you know, Leonard, Geran, Hagler, Haynes, and you know, I grew up watching all them type of fighters. So I was always around boxing. Boxing always been a big part of the family, and you no know, one I took to it. I was, I'm even to this day, I'm a boxing fan. I'll always watch boxing regardless of whether. It's a future opponent on my weight division. I'm, I'm a boxing fan, first and foremost. And you know, I, I've enjoyed watching the sport over the years and I've enjoyed being a part of it as well. You guys are all now all different weight classes from you know the 170s where Paul was fighting to all the way down to the, the 130s. But as kids, were you, I mean, were you sparring with each other? I mean, how competitive was, was that when, with each other? Yeah, we always used to spar in the house. We used to get the gloves on and, Sometimes he's only have one pair of gloves between us, so he'd have one hand each. And then my mum doesn't like boxing. She always say, keep it in the gym. So when she come in the door, we'd hide the gloves down at the back of the couch and pretend like nothing had happened. We'd all have red faces where we'd been knocking lumps out of each other. But we've always been competitive against each other. We've always wanted to, whether it's football, snooker, boxing, we always want to compete with each other and see who's the best. And you know, boxing was no different. And I think that's helped us improve, especially as younger kids. We were always competing in the house and especially me I had three older brothers who were always fighting at a higher level than me so I've always had them to to learn off and get advice off so, so your mom doesn't didn't like boxing and yet she had four kids that did box how did that work yeah she still to this day doesn't watch it she doesn't come and watch his fight she doesn't watch on the television she occupies herself keeps herself busy and she'll get a phone call to to give her the result of the fight but I think she's always said their happiest day will be when the last one retires and we're all done with it. I think she's proud of us for what we've achieved, but I don't think anyone likes seeing the sun getting punched in the face and she's had to watch watch four of them do it. So I think I think it's probably added a few years onto her and took a few years off a lifetime with the stress. But no, she I think she's proud of us. But no, I think I think she'd rather we chose something else. I, yeah, I'm wondering how it would be avoidable for her to to not see her son's ball. I mean, I'm sure there was a time when you guys were all active at the same time, where maybe you fought like within a few weeks of each other. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like some people have won the son fight and then he doesn't fight for a while after it. Whereas because there's four of us, there was always felt like each weekend there was one of us fighting, so she'd have to go through it. And she goes to bingo. She used to go to bingo with, with me nan and. She'd switch her phone off and then when she kind of know when the fight was finished, she'd put her phone back on and my dad would phone her and give her the result. But yeah, still to this day, she, she doesn't watch. She doesn't doesn't take too much interest in it. And when she does watch after it, she just looks for people in the crowd who was there watching rather than actually paying attention to the fighting. <laughs> Is there, I mean, 
you know, I want to talk about Canelo down the line, but like, if you ever fought a fight like a Canelo, would would she show up for something like that? No, no, definitely not. She she probably enjoyed the build up as even stuff. She wouldn't watch the fight at all. No, whatever level, she just doesn't doesn't enjoy watching. She didn't watch Liam when he fought Canelo. She didn't watch me when I won my world title. She just, I think if she was to watch and we was to lose, she probably thinks she, she jinxed us in it because she decided to watch. That was why why we lost. So she, she just, she's set in a way. She I don't think she'll ever watch. You know, having such great boxing minds in the family can be useful, I, I would guess. I mean, how, how involved do each of the brothers get involved with each other's preparation? I mean, obviously you each have trainers that you work with, but do you try to offer advice? Do you try to like become kind of part of the team during their preparation? Yeah, most definitely. You know, we're always there with each other every day. We're always in and around each other, and it's always good to get, especially for me being the youngest, it's good to get advice off them where they've been there before. They've obviously, every level I've reached as a boxer, they've been there before me, they've been and done it. So it's always good to, to get advice off them and you know, value their opinion more, more than anyone in boxing. So, it's always good to have them around with a very close family, with close knit. And I've always said being the youngest of four boxing brothers always benefited me massively through through getting advice and watching them and learning them and just being being in certain situations with them. So then when it did come for my time, I felt like I'd been there before. So it's been a really interesting year and a half for you, going back to when you won the Super Six in 2018. You know, a, a win that really cemented you as the top guy. Uh, in that division, regardless of where the belts uh, were. And then, what, six months later, you go to New York, your co-main event in one of the biggest shows of the year, the Joshua Ruiz fight, just a a massive crowd. Um, And then comes the fall and the John Ryder fight, and you get the win, but I think a lot of people looked at that and said, well, you know, what what happened there? That wasn't the same Callum Smith that we've we've seen. Tell me, what what has the last year and a half been like for you from the – the Groves win to where you finish with Ryder. Um, it's been obviously it's been good. I, I finally achieved what I always wanted to, which was to become a world champion. And you know, in my opinion, the number one in the division. But it's also been frustrating as well because the minute I, I beat George Groves, I wanted the biggest fights possible. I wanted to unify the division and you know, fight the biggest names. And being in a round boxing, you kind of know it's not as straightforward as that. And you know, I had a bit of time out, and then the opportunity come to fight at Madison Square Garden against Hassan and Dan, which again wasn't one of the bigger names I would have liked to have fought, but it was what it was. And then I expected to get you know, a big fight after that. And then you no know, boxing has mandatories and my mandatory was John Ryder. And you know, I, had to, I had to do that. And it, this, the fight was a lot closer than what, what it should have been and full credit to him. But they're not the type of opponents I want to, I want to be in the ring with. I want to fight your Benavidez, your Caleb Plants, your Billy Joe Saunders, the, the Unification fight and the Canelos. They were motivate me they would excite me after becoming a world champion I set myself new goals and new targets and that they're the fights that I want to be involved in so it's been frustrating if you'd said to me you know, over the year after being world champion you still won't have secured a, a big fight or a unification fight then obviously I'd have been disappointed but I've just got to stay patient I'm still a world champion I'm still in the best position possible to secure them fights so hopefully when boxing goes back to normal, we can we can get some of them fights sorted, and you know, I can really test myself against some of the better fights in the division, and we'll see how good I am. Not just to prove other people how good I am, but to prove to myself how good how good I can become. Well, yeah, why? I mean, I, I agree with you. I thought that after that Super Six win, you were going to get another big fight, and and because you were you looked so great against Groves, that it would be another big moment for you. I mean, 
Why do you think that hasn't happened? Is it just because guys, I mean, look, the reality is, Callum, as you know, that, you know, the better you look in the ring, the less guys want to fight you. I mean, that's just kind of the way it, the way it goes. But do you think that's it? Yeah, possibly. You know, I think I'm, I've always felt that I was never going to be followers world champion. No one was ever going to risk giving me a, a voluntary defense because I was, I was a good fighter, tall, you know, big puncher, but I always felt I'd have to get mandatory or, you know, get me shot through, through going in the world super series. But, I felt after become a world champion, the risk kind of, you no, know, the reward outweighs the risks. If you do beat me, you become a world champion. It's not like someone's giving me a voluntary defence and they've got more to lose than gain. So I thought it would be a little bit easier, but in boxing there's four champions, so maybe there was there was other champions with stylistically a better fight for other people. But again, I've got a good team around me who can secure them fights. I've got to just stay patient and hopefully my team can deliver. And now I do believe I am the best middleweight in the world, and hopefully. This year, next year, I can prove that by beating some of the other champions and unified the division. Did did Ryder surprise you with how he fought, or was that more about you and maybe not being you know as focused as you needed to be for a fight like that? Um, no, a bit of both. I think he didn't surprise me out the way he fought. I think tactically was what what I expected him to do. He tried to take away my advantages, get as close as he could, and you know, try and outwork me. It was more. I, I knew he was going to do that and I should have stopped him doing it and I allowed him to smother my work at times and outwork me at times. So it was more, so I was disappointed in my own performance. I don't know, I thought John Ryder performed great and that's what you'd expect from him. It's his first world title opportunity. He's got to grab with both hands and I feel he did. He come up, he turned up and he delivered and I just feel if a better version of me turned up, it would have been a more clear, convincing win and I'd have been able to move on and move on to the bigger fight. But it, it wasn't, it was a close fight and more due to my own bad performance, but I I know I can be better than that. I know I can perform better than that. And the next fight, it, it's down to me to prove that, that that wasn't the best of me and I'll show people how good I really am. And despite all that, I mean, you go back to February, March, and you're still in the mix for the biggest fight of the year to fight Canelo Alvarez. And, you know, bo- covering, as a reporter, covering boxing negotiations are impossible because you don't know who's telling the truth. You don't know what offers are real and what's not. Um, from your perspective, what happened there? How did it? How did it not come together that you got the Canelo fight? Um, I don't know. I think Golden Boy, as a promotional company, go out and try and you know, secure the biggest names possible, and they go back to to Team Canelo and they give the green light on which one they want. And I think that's what it was. They made me an offer. They made Saunders an offer. They made um, Maratta an offer. And I think there's the, the final decision lies with Renoso and Canelo, and I think that's all it was. I think they preferred the Saunders fight for whatever reason. I, I'm not too sure, but you know, we and Billy Joe both received the same offer, and then Billy Joe received the second offer, third offer, and and I never so I think they got the the, the go ahead off Renoso to pursue with Saunders and, and make that fight fight complete. So that's all I know. Obviously, it dragged on for a few months, but. It was a fight I wanted. It was a fight, you know. I, I still, I'd still take it in a heartbeat. It, you know, he's a superstar name, and in my opinion, he, he's, you know, he's the best middleweight in the world. He steps up the super middleweight. He, he slightly loses certain advantages that he has, but again, I'm in a good division. There's a lot of other good fights out there for me outside of Canelo Alvarez. So I've just got to concentrate on my own career. But no, it was nothing to do with me why I didn't get the fight. I think it was more just preference on their side. Mm. Your, your brother Liam said recently that he thought Canelo's team tried to embarrass you. Do you believe that? Um, I don't know what embarrassed me, but they made me an offer. They made Saunders the exact same offer, and we both said no to it. Yet they went to social media stating Callum Smith turned the Canelo Alvarez down. He turned down 
four times what he's ever earned and stuff like that. Yet he didn't mention anything that Saunders had turned the exact same offer down and Saunders turned and even the second offer, which was more money down, yeah, his name wasn't through under the bus on social media, man was. So I think it was more a case of if they do fight Saunders, people ask to fight me, they can say, well, we offered him, he turned it down. Whereas I think if you knew, knew the details and knew or read in between the lines that you'd know that no, it wasn't the case. I did want to fight. I turned down the exact same offer Saunders turned down, but no, my name was was put to the press that no, I was basically ducking the fight and didn't want to fight when that wasn't the case. You know, it's interesting watching the back and forth with you and Caleb Plant. And I, like, I like Caleb Plant. I think he does want real fights. Um, and you know, there was some you know again covering negotiations is impossible. You know, Caleb Plant said his management sent you a contract offer. Eddie said it was more of a conversation. What do you think of that fight? I mean, do you, do you think that's something that can be made? when boxing comes back? Hopefully. You know, I'd like to think so. I'd like to think you know, all the fights can be made at the highest level. you just got to just sit down and promoters agree with each other and fighters. I think all the fighters want to fight each other. It's more you know, promotional teams and television companies that kind of make it a little bit more complicated. But you know, Plant's a very good fighter. He's, he's a fighter I'd, lo- I'd love to fight. Or unification fight is something that does, does excite me. Hopefully when this gets... I don't know what... Eddie's relationship like with Al Eamon, but I'm sure you know they, they can work together and we can get the fight fight made because you know it's a fight that I want and I'm sure it's a fight that Plant will want. Uh, Eddie can get along with anybody. He just he he talks trash one day and then just gives him a big hug the next day. He doesn't. He just this is like a half a game to him half the time. <laughs> He's just, uh, you've mentioned a couple times though, like you're a big guy and and during this pandemic, you know. You wonder, I've wondered, like, how long can you stay at, at 168? I mean, what's your mindset on that, you know, being a super middleweight for how long? Um, my mindset's always been, you know, as long as I've got a good team, a good nutritionist, and as long as I can do it and perform at it, which I feel I am, then, you know, I like to stay here and achieve as much as I can at 168 before, you know, I think the move to 175 is inevitable. It's, it's The goal of becoming a two-world champion is, is massive for me and you know, it would something I'd like to achieve. I believe I'm you not know, big enough and good enough to, to move up and compete at the highest level at that weight division. I'd just like to achieve as much as I can while I'm here before, before making the jump. But listen, I'm in here for the biggest fights possible and if the biggest fights possible at 175, then you know, I'd move up sooner rather than later. But I feel like I can still do 168. I can still perform at it and when you mentioned the likes of Plant, Benavidez, Saunders, there's still big fights for me at this weight before moving, so I'd like to stay here as long as I can. Yeah, a lot of good fights still at 168 if you can uh, keep making that weight. The the other thing is, and you've talked about this, I'm sure, in the past, but, I mean, we're in a new financial reality with, with closed-door fights and, you know, things changing, at least for the rest of this year, most likely. Uh, what's your position on that? I mean, you know, fighting with no crowds, and, and, and how... I mean, how how much do you do you grasp? Like, do you believe that there is kind of a a new financial reality out there for fighters where maybe they don't make quite as much as they used to because you can't have crowds in the stands? Um, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a funny one. I don't know all the details, but you no know, fights behind closed doors. The idea of it getting boxing on television is great for for the boxing fan. The reality of it for the fans, I think, you no know, personally, I'd, I'd I'd rather fight in front of a crowd than than you know an empty arena, but. If it's a case of fight in front of an empty arena or wait a few months and go back to normal, then I'd rather wait. But if you're saying it's no, it's going to go on for another year, then it's a case of having to. You've got to you've got to carry on with your career. So I think it's just how long it's going to take to get back to normal. Whether it's worth sitting out and waiting or just just getting back in the ring and just get back fighting. We're all in 
the same position. So it's the it, you know we're all in the same boat. So you've got to just suck it up and get on with it. But hopefully it's it, it's not too much longer. And we have a couple of couple of shows behind closed door, and then hopefully we can go back to normal. It's tough to say to boxers like just take a little less money and and fight behind closed. Like you can say it to soccer players or basketball players. They're not getting their heads punched you know every single time out it's it's tough for fighters to you really do have to kind of i mean guess like i mean if i wait a few months i can do it but what if it's a year what if it goes even longer it's got to be tough to kind of to navigate that yeah i think that's what the the frustrating part is we're not just in boxing with everything in life in general is in we don't know the end date we don't know what when things are going to go back to normal and i think if they were to say it's going to be like this for three months and then we're back to normal then you kind of adjust your life and work towards that whereas I think this is just it's got no end so in terms of boxing do we sit and wait it out and hopefully it goes back to normal in a few months or a few months could go by and we're still in the same position and you've wasted you no know, more more time in your career so I think it's gonna you no know, the longer it goes on you no know, a lot of fighters are gonna have a decision to make whether they just get back in the ring take less money and fight behind closed doors just to get the career moving again or you know, other fighters might just want to sit it out and wait some fighters Know, rely on the crowd some fighters may, may not be willing to fight for less money as you say they're risking risking the health so it, it it all depends on the individual you've got to just you have a decision to make and you've got to go with it so there's you know the, the billy joe fight with you would be massive over in the uk but a lot of the other 168 pounders are u.s based uh, including daniel jacobs in that mix um like what was your experience like fighting in new york and how willing would you be to to fight in the US somewhat regularly if you had to. Yeah, listen, I really enjoyed it. Madison Square Garden was always a venue that given the opportunity I'd jump at it. It doesn't present itself very often and oh it was something it was a box tick for me. It was something I'd always wanted to do. You know, Vegas, Madison Square Garden, they're the they're the, the iconic venues that you see. You know, you stay up late watching the fights as, as a young boy. So it was always something I wanted to do and I'm not one of these fighters who relies on home advantage. I go back to America, my next fight it means be I'm not big on Hell bent on getting the opponent to come over to me, so it is something I'd be open to doing, especially with Matchroom and Matchroom USA. It's probably more likely that there's going to be a lot more shows over in the states, and I, I, I'm definitely up for for going back over there, and especially with two of the other champions and Daniel Jacobs all being being based stateside. Then I think it makes sense. And how willing would you be to fight in Eddie Hearn's backyard, which is uh, apparently where there may be fights down the line? Yeah, I've seen that apparently, but it again the idea of it's good as a boxing fan. You know, as long as you get sport back on the TV, it's something to keep us occupied. And but whether I'd be willing to go into you know, one of the biggest fights in my career behind closed doors with no atmosphere, again it'd be something I'd have to I'd have to weigh up. But when I went out to Saudi, I expected a, a bit of a dull atmosphere, and we got quite quite an okay crowd. So you never know. Sometimes once you step in the ring, you perform regardless. But sometimes some fights deserve a crowd, whether it's an entertaining one or not that's another one too that's that's another one too the you know fighting in saudi arabia i mean you've done it you won the super six over there we had aj fighting uh and winning his fight over there there's a chance to make up for some of that gate loss that we see more fights in the middle east i mean what was that a good experience for you would you be willing to do that again in the right situation yeah it's the most definitely i've always said that fight wherever whatever makes the most sense it's Especially with with Saudi, it was it was I was fighting another English fighter, so we were both in the same position. It was a le- <coughs> sorry, it was a level playing field, and looking back, it, it just made you know, my experience a little bit more better. You know, I won my world title in Saudi Arabia the whole week beforehand. It was it was something different, but something I, I definitely enjoyed, and you know, I'd be willing to fight wherever. So it makes the most sense. I'm not 
I'm not one of these who's hell-bent on having home advantage. Yeah, well, Callum, we'd like to uh, see you back in the ring real soon. Good luck with everything during this uh, this pandemic, and thanks for joining me here on the show. Donna Woody's anytime. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, that's it for this week's episode. My thanks to my guests. As always, subscribe to the podcast over at Apple Podcasts. Rate, review, you know I appreciate it, and I'll see you next week. Fire the grill and fire up the party. Get the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. Go from low and slow on smoke boost mode at 180 degrees all the way to high heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full grate sear zone so you can put more food on the flame. Food will look as good as it tastes. This grill is hot in 15 minutes and cleanup is easy. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.